you must not live like them, and talks about how the gospel should change every aspect of the way that we live our daily lives. A few weeks ago, Fletcher looked at Jacob's recommitment to the Lord in Genesis and noted that recommitment requires repentance. Repentance means turning around. It means thinking and living in a different way, completely different way that we used to think and live. We need to walk differently. Differently to what? Differently to the way that we used to live? Differently to the way we might naturally feel like living and walking? And differently to the way the world walks around us? Going back to verse 17, Paul continues on with a description of what it is that walk of the world looks like. And it's a bleak picture. It's important to realize that these words aren't designed to make us feel smug or self-important, to build ourselves up, because it's only through God's grace that we're saved. It's not our own efforts. Even though God has given us new good works to walk in, uh, we can't be judgmental, for we have nothing to boast in. We're not superior, and we'd be in exactly the same place except for the grace of God. But we need to be realistic about the world. So Paul here gives us a true picture of what the world is and what the world looks like. He wants us to feel the futility so we can see how important it is to turn around and walk the other way. Now this I say in testifying the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So Paul was speaking here to Greeks, and Greeks believed that the mind, the intellect, is the most important, most worthwhile part of humanity. Uh, Philosophy was really their savior. Uh, So this was pretty offensive to people who considered themselves the most intelligent or intellectually superior people. Um, If you live in this area uh, of the Boston area, Somerville, Cambridge, you live amongst some of the world's most intelligent people, attending some of the best schools in the world. And there's people out there on the street or in this room who could easily run intellectual circles around me. And yet Paul talks about the futility of their minds apart from Christ. He's clearly not speaking about their intelligence, so what is he talking about? He's speaking about three major issues. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, and they have a hardness of heart, becoming calloused. That word here, calloused, is not just a rejection of God, but a continual rejection that leads to a numbness. It's a willful action of rejecting God. Uh, a culpable ignorance here. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, which is an allegory about heaven and hell, uh, talking about um, kind of people at the end of their lives, has this quote, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. This this, uh, willful action of rejecting God as God hands people over to themselves. The futility in the mind and the heart is what informs the walk of the world. And as a result, where does it lead? What is the result? Paul gives us that in verse 19. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now this is obviously not a description of every single person that you know, their specific life uh, apart from Christ, but it is a description of every single person's trajectory of their life apart from Christ. There's parallels here to what Paul wrote in Romans 1, starting in verse 18. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We must know the world as it really is and not as it likes to think of itself or present itself to us. The world thinks it's doing fairly well. And as good as it is today, it's going to get a little bit better tomorrow, and it's going to get a little bit better the week after that. It's how the world sees itself, but that's not how God sees the world. It's not the way things actually are. In truth, the world is a dreadful place. It has information, has intelligence, but it lacks true knowledge, the only knowledge that really matters, the knowledge of God. And lacking that knowledge, it becomes increasingly wicked or not to envy it. To demonstrate the darkness of the world, all you have to do is go to any news website or look at a newspaper from any city in the world. Pick any day of the week. You can turn to any section in that newspaper or, or, or website. You can go to politics, religion, entertainment, sports, and you'll be face to face with people pursuing every kind of impurity in the world because the trajectory of the world apart from Christ is dark. Saw a headline this week about a man involved in a scheme involving cow manure where he had stolen $8.75 million. So the agriculture section is not immune to this trajectory. Christians, and especially Christian leaders, are not immune from the world's ways of walking that Paul describes here. We live in the world, so we're easily affected by the walk of the world be subtle in how it infects our lives. But we do have something that the world doesn't have. We have something to lift our eyes to. We have the great hope of the gospel. We have a risen Jesus who is Lord over all, now and forever. We have the death of Jesus Christ for our sins, which means that even if we've been walking in these futile ways, we can always come to God in repentance. We can turn from the way we've been walking we can be sure that God will hear and forgive us through his son's death for us and continue to help us live for him. If you're like me, living in Somerville or the Boston area, as a Christian, can sometimes be intimidating, whether it's the education, the intelligence of the people around you, whether it's their wealth, uh, the relationships, their lives seemingly all together uh, of the people around us. And you can ask yourself, like I do, what does Christ have to offer these people? And the answer is that Christ has to offer the only thing that matters. By his grace, we can know him. The walk of the world is futile, ignorant, and dark, and we can and we must walk a different way. Let's look at the next few verses, picking up in verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, 
to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I love the word choice here, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Not learned about Christ, learned Christ. Experienced a relationship with him. It's about learning who Christ is and what he's done for us. It's about having our heads, our hearts, and our hands shaped by these realities. John 17 says, this is eternal life that you may know that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's the opposite, Paul is talking about, the opposite of the walking in the way of the world. I really liked how one commentator described this section of Ephesians 4. He called it the school of Christ. We have learning Christ, this experiencing a relationship with him, hearing about him. We hear Christ speak through his word, and through teaching and preaching. There's a supernatural way that God speaks to change our hearts and our minds and to draw us to him. And then being taught in him, where Jesus is the subject, he's the teacher, and he's the whole school in which we are learning. Following Christ is to forever be a student in this school of Christ. And the process of recommitment and repentance doesn't end. The truth here uh, that he talks about in uh, these verses is the gospel message about salvation through Christ. So as we learn Christ, we're learning certain facts and objective realities about God and how he has brought salvation to us. But these doctrines aren't generalized facts about the universe. They're truths about a specific person, Jesus. Paul's not talking here about a general concept. He's talking about the actual person of Jesus, the Son of God who came to live among us and who taught certain things about who he is and what he came to do and how to live for him. He died on a cross in our place to take God's wrath that we deserve on himself. And he rose from the dead and promises to return to judge the world and take his people to eternal glory with him. The truth is in this person, Jesus. This is how we come to know the truth, by knowing Jesus. Being a Christian is simply learning to know and live for Jesus Christ, learning who he is and what he's done, and then having that learning shape our lives around him. Back to verse 22, he says, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The visual here is changing clothes, maybe, to kind of put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. That former manner of life, that walk of the Gentiles he described earlier, is corrupt through deceitful desires. There's the futility of the mind. Put on the new self, be renewed in the spirit of your minds, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. As Christians, we've exchanged death for life in this changing of clothes. And knowledge will lead to transformation in your life. Later in Ephesians 5, he uses, he uses the visual of darkness and lightness again. For at one time you were in darkness, 
but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. It's important to take a step back here at this point and recognize the sequence in which Paul has laid these things out. For it's by grace that we've been saved. We don't start the Christian life by changing our actions, changing our clothes, putting off, putting on. We first recognize that it's only through God's grace we are saved. Transformation will occur in response to God's grace. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith, he says in Ephesians 2. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Continuing on in verse 25, he says, Therefore, having put, a, put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is not just living your normal biotech career, Somerville, middle-class life, sprinkled with morality. But this is the complete opposite of a darkened and hardened heart. We're not to simply stop lying, but we're to speak truth, spread truth. Christ has transformed us from the inside out, from our thinking and our motivations to our actions. Our life in Christ will have external evidence of an internal transformation. These sections here show an imitation of Christ and how he lived. And each of these has an element of putting off the walk of the world and putting on the new self as we were created. Put off falsehood, which is lying, and we're to put on truth. In a world that proposes truth is maybe subjective or political or biased or self-serving, How can we love our neighbors by sharing truth here, the gospel message about salvation through Jesus Christ? We put off sinful anger. Sinful anger is uncontrolled, it's selfish, it's prideful, and we put on righteousness. We deal with anger quickly, and we reconcile with one another. We put off stealing, and we put on honest work and generosity. I'm reminded of the story of Zacchaeus the chief tax collector who was infamous for stealing from others around him. And through an encounter with Jesus, he not only gave half of everything he had to the poor, showing this transformation of giving to those in need, but also gave back fourfold what he had stolen, turning the stealing to an act of generosity. And only an encounter with Christ can do that for us. We put off corrupting talk, and we put on talk that is good for building up, talk that is full of grace. There's a 
kind of unusual interruption here where it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Uh, all sin, uh, especially sin of the tongue, is cause of personal sorrow to God. But the Spirit is the bond of life, uh, of fellowship. And offending a brother or sister is especially uh, sorrowful and grieves the Lord. We put off bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander along with all malice. We put on kindness, being tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We've been forgiven and will not be able to do these things apart from Christ, apart from God's grace and forgiveness, and so in turn we should forgive others. We're not to live as the world but our duty is not exhausted when we've rejected its values or established a different way of life. It's not enough to just come out of the world and be separate, but we're to pray and seek a movement of God's Spirit today. We must make the Word of God known to the world, seeing that it's the vehicle by which God turns sinners from darkness to His marvelous light and transforms their minds and hearts. It can be tempting to look at these last few verses in isolation as a checklist or a bit of a morality handbook to ensure you stay on the straight and narrow, to go home today and try to figure out which of these items you need to work on. But again, Paul's context here is laid out in Ephesians 2. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast. And let's not miss verse 10 here. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's not a checklist or an opportunity to judge those around us who are not living up to these standards. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to live as your creator set out for you before you were even born. We put off and we put on in response to God's grace and transformational work in our lives. It's simply the external evidence of an internal transformation. We see how it ends in verse 32 with forgiveness. Because we continue to live in a broken world, continue to fail to respond in these ways. Yet Christ forgave you and he forgives me. So I don't boast for avoiding the sin of others because I'm a sinner desperately in need of forgiveness and grace of a Savior. To follow Christ is to know Christ. If you're a believer here today, I'd encourage you to go back to the school of Christ. Learn Christ. Spend time with him. Hear about who he is and what he's done and allow it to transform your walk today. Putting off and putting on will follow after a deeper and more intimate relationship with Jesus. If you're not a believer, this is an invitation to know someone who can transform your life. You've been given a snapshot today of what it looks like for a follower of Christ. It includes a relationship with a gracious and loving God who wants you to experience life as he created it for you. Don't start by trying to clean yourself off, up or trying to carefully figure out how to articulate theology. Just hear about who Jesus is, what he's done, and getting to know him as a person 
softening your heart towards his. In Luke 11, Jesus says that if you seek after him, you will find him. And I pray that you'll find him uh, today. Mark, thank you so much. I can't think of uh, many more difficult Sundays to come in and preach when there's, you know, family worship Sunday, have kids in here. Thank you for, thank you for, uh, for, for doing it, brother. And, and really, I was reading in Philippians this morning, I'm just a couple days behind in the church plan that we do, and um, Paul was saying something that he says all the time, where he says, hey, imitate me as I follow after Christ. And I'll say this about Mark is that he's someone that I want to imitate. I want to look at the way that when he says these things to you about how the gospel doesn't just make us more moral people, but it makes us people who have not just uh, stopped lying, but now we're truth tellers. We're not just living our normal Somervillian life with a little morality sprinkled in. What a great line he has there. But we're people who are pursuing the goodness of Christ, pursuing the truth of Christ. He is doing that. And I'm so thankful that he gets to share just a little bit of what the Lord showed him in his study of the word this morning. Uh, We have an opportunity every week to respond to God's word, to respond to it through a sacred meal that the Lord gave to us. So on the night that he was betrayed, and just, just put yourself there for a moment, the night that Jesus Christ was betrayed by one of his closest followers. He had a meal with that follower and others in the room. And his 12 closest followers were with him, and they gathered around a table, and then he started saying some really weird stuff. And he said, this is my body. He held held up a loaf of bread, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. To which the disciples said, that's weird, but okay. And then he took a cup, and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Drink this in remembrance of me, the cup of the new covenant. And so in so doing, he initiated a sacred meal that Christians throughout the history of Christianity over the past 2,000 years have practiced together regularly. And we at our church practice it every week to be reminded in a physical kind of way of the good news of Jesus, which is that his body was broken for us. That is not our morality, but it's what he's done for us, that his blood was shed for us. And that through what he has done, we get to have a relationship with God. So let's stand at church as we prepare our hearts to sing God's praises and to respond to him through a couple final songs and through taking of the sacred meal. Pray with me. Father, as we enjoy this meal, as we enjoy this time, we pray that you would remind us of the good news of Jesus. That it's not what we can do, but it's what you've done for us. And because of what you've done for us, you've changed us from the inside out. No longer do we want to live in the ways of the world, but we want to live for your glory. And so, God, we pray that as we receive this sacred meal, that you would be magnified, made much of, and that you would help our hearts to to yearn for you, to follow after you. God, we pray for anyone here who's considering... Uh, their lives and evaluating their lives, we pray that they would be recipients of the grace of God, and that they would understand the sacrifice of Christ on their behalf. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.